Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Many areas of the country suffered through prolonged heat waves in September. And now, maybe your fruit tree orchard is having problems. We have some ideas on how to help your fruit trees get through next year's unexpected heat waves. You've seen the bags and boxes of fertilizers and soil amendments that say, now containing mycorrhizae. Uh, is, is that a good buy? America's favorite college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, gives her take on that. Also, she has tips for thwarting deer from your garden. Finally, an outdoor power equipment expert tells us about the latest items that can blow your fallen leaves into a pile, suck them up, and then grind them up. Perfect for topping a garden bed in the cold season. It's a combination portable leaf blower, vacuum, and mulching machine. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. talking with Quentin Young of Q Young Gardens. He's a landscaper in the Sacramento area, also a master gardener. He works in the orchard at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, and we're standing next to an espaliered Stella cherry tree that is trying to recover from a recent bout of unusually high heat here in the Sacramento area. But it has an interesting story. Q, the Stella cherry uh, and all cherry trees around here, we've been told in Mediterranean climates, need to be pruned in August in order for those wounds to heal so that it is not poorly affected by any blowing rain-driven spores in the wintertime from cherry d- diseases like Pseudomonas or Botrytis. By the way, in the show notes, we'll have links to more information about uh, cherry diseases. So it is true, though, that uh, cherries and apricots are very susceptible to rain-borne diseases and need to get pruned before the rainy season starts. Uh, that's true, and that's something that we try to adhere to here in the orchard. This year was unusual with about of 110 degree heat for several days in a row, including a record-breaking 116 degrees, and I think that 10-day bout of heat happened less than a week after this espalier cherry, the Stella cherry, started uh, acting a little funny, and it's a north-south facing espalier here. The north side, very green. The south side, not so green. Yeah, you can see um, it's a really um, stark difference between the two different sides, and the south side really got fried with that heat wave. What's the prognosis for it? I think it'll pull through. Um, uh, you can see, um, it looks like they even put some fresh uh, trunk paint on some areas that were opened up to the sun when they did the pruning, which is something we also do in the orchard. Um, now that I'm looking at this, I'm thinking maybe next year we might want to have it set up so that we can maybe cover it with a frost cloth or something like that or Agrabond because that was part of the premise with doing this two-dimensionally both with, with the peach 
and with the cherry. Um, if theoretically we wanted to try to protect it from the spotted wing Drosophila, we could net it or, you know, cover it with Agrabon to protect the cherries and also with the peach tree if we wanted to experiment with protecting it from uh, peach leaf curl. So that was part of the reason for growing these two-dimensionally like this. Yeah, we should point out that on this espalier, there is a Stella cherry tree, and planted right next to it is an O'Henry peach. Uh, the O'Henry peach seemed to make it like a champ, but then again, that wasn't pruned, was it? Uh, not as severely as the cherry was, yeah. And we are still behind on pruning the cherry, the multigraph cherry down in the orchard. But maybe that's a good thing. I think so. And I, I think we should expect maybe, like you said, maybe waiting a little bit later. And unfortunately, I think the um, the estimate is going to be a drier winter, you know, longer or I should say later. So I think we might be safe doing some of the pruning now. That's kind of the thinking in a drought is that the, when rains do happen, the really heavy rains, it may not be till November or December. Uh, but you never know. And you mentioned painting the trunks, and that's a great idea because of uh, sunburn, sunscald to uh, newly exposed branches. Uh, we saw that the leaves turned crispy after they had been protected from that outer layer that was pruned away. Those leaves turned brown. What about the stems and the trunk? Did you see any uh, signs of sunburn or sunscald? On the stems, no. And um, on the trunk, it's a little bit hard to say right now because they're still sort of covered covered with leaves. Um, but we did do some fresh painting just to be just to be safe. After the fact. After the fact, or actually during the fact. You know, sometimes in the orchard when we're pruning in the summer, um, we'll, we'll often have kind of a group meeting of, do you want to paint this branch now that we've opened up, let's say, the center of a tree during the heat of the summer. Painting, whitewashing uh, the trunk and the sun-exposed branches is a good idea. The whitewash could be simple as uh, 50% interior white latex paint and 50% water and apply that. I like the idea of covering it when these heat waves are expected and by having it espalier basically a two-dimensional fruit tree and with the system you have here, it'd be fairly easy to throw a bit of a shade cloth over it. Yeah, and I think it'll, it would be easy because like you said, the, the north side, I think, is fine. The south side, I think we could maybe just cover that side. Um, when we experimented with the multigraph cherry in the orchard, covering it completely with Agrabon, um, what we found in the summer is it made it too hot and it caused the cherries to ripen so quickly that they actually got mushy. But here it'd be a little bit different because we would just be covering, I think, one side and it wouldn't be creating such a heat box like it did in the orchard. And I think we have it on the website. You can actually see the Fair Oaks Horticulture website. You can see that Agrabon experiment, and it, like I said, it made it way too hot, but I think it'd be easy just to cover one side here. What weight Agrabon was that, and what weight would you recommend for summer protection? I would try to go as light as possible. I think what we used was 50%. Mm, okay, and you could have gone down to 30 or so. Yeah, yeah, we hadn't realized how hot it was going to turn. Um, it's basically, it was just a giant square of Agrabon uh, floating on a PVC frame, and it really, um, it was actually really uncomfortable to work in there, too. In your postmortem in the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center orchard after that bout of record heat, uh, what other things did you notice? We noticed um, fruit ripening faster. We noticed quite a bit of um, pit damage, like especially with peaches and nectarines, damage around the pits from the extreme heat, and we noticed a lot of fruit drop too. I would think that, uh, especially with pit burn, that maybe if you have an eye on that long 
short-term forecast and you notice that a heat wave is coming, maybe harvest the near-ripened fruit? Yeah, I think so, and just try to counter-ripen. Because once that, once that, um, once we had that damage, the, the fruit was really unusable. That's advice also now for tomato plants, too. If you have tomatoes growing and you know that there's going to be a bout of unusually high heat, uh, the experts are saying to harvest those tomatoes, even though they may not be fully ripe, and let them ripen on the counter because high heat can turn them to mush really quick. Yeah, we, and we had that problem also with uh, plums and pluots. That's a difficult one because they, they can harvest at different times. Yeah, and then, like I said, we're only here once a week, so we were, you know, we would come here and we would see quite a bit of fruit um, fallen on the ground. Um, most of it was unusable because it was already mushy. I would think, too, that after a summer pruning, even if it is in September instead of August, would you avoid fertilization? Yeah, we don't do any fertilizing in the fall here. Oh, it's all springtime. All springtime. Um, I might fertilize some of the fruit trees, like the tropicals that we have in the barrels. But other than that, we don't fertilize our fruit trees, except in the spring, like you said. But in reality, the, the trees are being fertilized year-round because of the several inches of mulch on the ground. Uh, several inches of mulch, and we also leave all the cuttings as well. So um, they get a good mix of carbon and nitrogen. And then it's just the citrus trees primarily that will fertilize in the springtime. Have you seen an unusual amount of sunburn on citrus fruit this year? I would say not yet, but I've noticed um, a lot of fruit splitting. Which is usually a, a boom-bust cycle of water. I think it was that rain that we had um, was about maybe 10 days ago. You know, I, the, the fruit gets wet, it can't expand fast enough, and it just splits. Really, and all rain is local, just like all gardening is local. And it was interesting that uh, the area around here got over an inch of rain, whereas where I live, it was uh, less than half an inch. Yeah, it was very spotty, yeah. So that's the other thing with the changing climate, and we're not going to be climate change deniers here. Uh, with a changing climate, you do have those storms that are very localized. Very localized, and I think we're going to see that kind of boom and bust cycle where you're either going to get no rain or a lot of rain all at once. All right. Now, with a cherry tree that is recovering like this, are you doing anything special for it? Are you increasing irrigation or decreasing no. irrigation? No, we basically maintain the same irrigation throughout the season, especially since we've picked most of the fruit. So usually in October, we're going to start reducing most of our irrigation anyway. And one thing we should point out, too, is uh, a leaf can still photosynthesize, even though there may be brown portions on it from uh, the high heat. The edges are burned, but don't remove any leaves because of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're just going to we're going to leave it be. We're going to baby it into the fall. Then fingers crossed. We have a nice rainy winter. The same is true with peach leaf curl, isn't it? With peach leaf curl, too, yeah. We just sort of put up with it here in the nursery or uh, at the orchard. Um, the, tr the trees will uh, drop the diseased leaves and push out new leaves. Um, but as long as they're still on the tree, they're still producing food for the tree. All right. Any uh, tips for us to get through the winter? Uh, just uh, keep your fingers crossed for a good rainy winter. <laughs> yes. And maybe keep the frost cloths handy just in case. Just in case. Hopefully, we'll, um, again, we need the chill hours for our fruit trees. Right. We need the chill hours and frost cloths would be for citrus, not for deciduous fruit trees. That's true. Yeah, that's correct. But I like the idea, too, of even for a frost or a freeze, if you think one is coming to your area where normally you may not get one, would be to whitewash the trunk and the branches. Yeah, and that's a good time to do it, too, in the winter when you can see the, um, see the structure of the tree, too. 
All right. So you practice summer pruning here for the most part on all your trees. On all the trees. We do very little winter pruning. Right. And it's probably in the wintertime, you, you just notice maybe crossing or rubbing branches you didn't see before because of all the leaf yeah. cover. And some de- or some dead branches, too. Yeah. All right. We live in interesting times, somebody once said. And it truly is when it comes to being a gardener, we have to learn to adapt and uh, do things uh, uh, perhaps a little bit differently. What about growing cherry trees and because they do have a thin bark maybe where they could get afternoon shade i think that would be helpful i think that's also true for flowering cherries too the non-fruiting flowering cherries i usually try to tell clients plant them where they're going to get afternoon shade because they're really susceptible to burning on on their trunks all right. Uh, speaking of clients, tell us about your business. Uh, basically, I'm doing um, consulting, installation, specialized pruning, um, and uh, anything that's kind of related to that. So if somebody wanted in the Sacramento area their Japanese maple tree pruned? That- Depending on the size, yeah, yeah. But also a lot of specialized pruning for fruit trees and things like that. There you go. Quentin Young, master gardener, landscaper here in the Sacramento area. Thanks for getting us through the uh, climate change. Sure, Fred. Thanks for having me on. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied smart pot owners who have been using the same smart pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose smart pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate smart pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in smart pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your smart pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. 
Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. You're seeing more and more bag soil amendments at the nursery with the phrase, contains mycorrhizae. Well, does it? Is it? Let's find out more. Debbie Flower is here, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor. Mycorrhizal fungi in growing media seems to be the craze. Boy, it sure is. It seems to be the uh, extra component in a lot of bagged products. But I often wonder, how can something stay alive sitting on asphalt in the summertime outside? Right. That is definitely a question. Fungus has... One little benefit in that it does have a resting stage, which is a spore. So maybe some of the spores have survived. But the in general, living things, this is a, a, a manufactured product that's been put in a bag, sat in a warehouse, then put on a truck or some other form of transportation and brought to the store where it is sits outside or in a, a not very well temperature controlled area and stews basically and dies. So a lot of it is probably not alive. I have to say I remember when mycorrhiza started showing up in in bagged products in fertilizers as well and the cost of those bagged products and those fertilizers went up dramatically. You're paying quite a bit. You may, you may not realize it. Maybe you weren't gardening back then when it first started, but you're paying a pretty penny for something that may be completely dead. I remember when mycorrhiza started get adding to fertilizer. One uh, fertilizer company approached me at the time and said, uh, you know, will you do commercials for us? I go, well, for that to happen, I need to test your product. Mm-hmm. And so they sent me a box of their fertilizer and I set up a test in the greenhouse, testing their fertilizer against three others mm-hmm. and including a control with no fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And by gum, it worked. I mean, it, it was the second best. Okay. It, it, there were good results growing in, I use marigolds okay. to grow. And then they were the second most lush. Mm-hmm. The first luscious batch of uh, marigolds were grown using uh, fish emulsion. Uh-huh. The, you know, the, the results of this uh, mycorrhizal added fertilizer seemed to work okay. So I go, well, okay, I'll do one set of commercials for you. And I did, and it was fine. And I used that product uh, uh, throughout that summer. And then next year, they sent me another box Mm -hmm. of the same thing, supposedly the same thing. And when the plants came up, they all keeled over. Oh, my. And I asked them about that. They go, yeah, we got some formula wrong on the shipments we sent out. And uh, yeah, there were little... Too much added nitrogen, I think mm-hmm. the problem burned, was. Burned Bur- them. It burned when they them. they were young. Yeah. And so immediately I said, well, that's okay. I have fish emulsions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> it, it varies batch to batch, too. Right. Varies batch to batch. Mycorrhizal fungal are very specific to their host, some more than others, and they will not do anything if their host plant is not there. Also, the way they work, you get them in the soil, and they're out there. They're out there in the air. And they find their host. They blow around in the spore stage or something, and they find their host plant. They hang around in the soil and need a signal to become active, to germinate from their spore. And once they get that signal, which comes from the plant, then they grow 
hypha. Hypha is like a stem for fungus, except it's a single line of cells. It can have branches, but it's a single line of cells. It doesn't take multiple cells to make a stem of fungus. So it can go really long distances and it can go into really small places. And so the the fungus starts to grow and it collects phosphorus and water are the two primary things that it brings back to the plant. In exchange for that phosphorus and water, the plant gives the some of the plant sap to the fungus to keep it alive. So it sounds great, right? Well, there's conditions where the plant will not give the signal. One of those is the plant's really healthy. It's doing just fine. It doesn't need extra water. It doesn't need extra phosphorus. Then whatever the plant exudes from the roots, and we are gaining more and more evidence all the time that plants do exude things from their roots into the soil that feed other things, but what it exudes doesn't give the signal that the mycorrhiza needs to grow. And so nothing happens. If the mycorrhiza happen to be the right host, happen to be alive, and they're in a bag of fertilizer, they're probably never going to become active because the plant is getting fertilizer and doesn't need their help. Getting back to the mycorrhizal that's in the bag, can it help to rehydrate the bag when you get it home? Would that uh, bring those mycorrhizal back to life? If there's anything alive in there, it's a spore, and the spore will not germinate unless... I used to say to my students, I have this theory that when Armageddon happens, if it happens, and the earth, as we know it, implodes, fire, flood, freezing, whatever it is, fungal spores are the thing that are going to live through it. They not, are, not cockroaches. <laughs> well, that's another possibility I hadn't thought of. <laughs> they are very well protected against environmental issues. Uh, like freezing, thawing, drying out water. They need a little tiny bit of water, but they're in a, like a seed in a packet. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in a state where they really don't consume water. So no, adding water to the bag is not going to help. Okay. But so those spores can survive though, being mm-hmm. in a bag on hot asphalt uh, throughout the summer in front of a nursery. Mm-hmm. Potentially some can. Yes. But it's going to take a chemical signal from the plant in order to activate those spores. And not just any plant, the specific plant that fungus has a mycorrhizal relationship with. If you've ever read the mycorrhizal ingredients on a bag soil product, you'll see a, a whole host of mycorrhizal products in there. And so I, I guess it's kind of a crapshoot that right. we'll throw it all against the wall and see what sticks right. as far as the plant goes, because one of those is bound to work with the plant. Right. That's initially when they were putting mycorrhizal fungus into bagged goods, it was just one or two different species. And then this information about host specificity became better known, I think. And and yes, now it's 17 or 27. It'll say live Mm -hmm. organisms. Sometimes it says they don't always use the word mycorrhizal fungi. Is there a difference between mycorrhizal fungi and mycorrhizal bacteria and the plants that they react with? Yeah, I'm not aware of the term mycorrhizal bacteria. There are bacteria that we inoculate some seeds with that help the plants fix nitrogen. Right. Yeah. Um, like that bag of clover seeds sitting over there. Right. Yes. Right. So that is, they're different organisms. Yeah. Uh, and for decades, more, you know, longer than I've been alive, that is, that product has been sold to inoculate your legume seeds. So beans and peas and mm-hmm. things like that. And there is some specificity to that. Uh, there are fewer species of that. 
So initially, when I first started buying it, you just bought one packet and it didn't specify what it was for. You used it on everything. Right. So I It was inoculant. Yes, it's called inoculant. And I assume it had all the species of the bacteria that the few, there aren't that many, that uh, did the did this. And, and they have a similar relationship with the roots of specific plants. And we know what they are. And uh, the beans and the peas, et cetera. And they uh, also, they take nitrogen out of the air. So it's a different nutrient. And they fix it. To fix nitrogen, nitrogen exists primarily as a gas in the air. It, to fix it means react it with a hydrogen or an oxygen so it becomes a molecule. It becomes heavier and it can be stored in, in soil or in roots. And so the, the bacteria actually fix the nitrogen. And then when they the roots die... That's another sort of problem with nitrogen fixation. But when the roots die, and roots actually turn over, a, a plant doesn't have a set of roots. Some of the roots, the feeder roots, which are collecting the nutrients, turn over quickly. They they have some they're using today, and then they make new ones, and three days later, the, some die. And so, so when that root dies, it releases the nitrogen uh-huh. into the soil, and then... It, it can dissolve in water and be absorbed by the roots. Just like us. Yes. So it's a yeah, releasing nitrogen. Yes. It's a different process. It's a, a, but it has a lot of similarities. Yes. I think what I'm confusing it with is compost. You have a bacterially dominated forms of compost mm-hmm. and fungally dominated forms of compost. One is better for annual plants. One is better for trees and shrubs. And I always confuse which is which. And that's, yes, I, I know what you're talking about. And that's true with soil. If you mulch your soil regularly with arborist chips, as I do, you get way fewer herbaceous weeds because the herbaceous weeds, whatever dominated soil, the breakdown of the woody product creates does not support the herbaceous weeds as well. And that has to do with the microorganisms that are just living in the soil. And finding compost that is green waste based is difficult because some of these companies, if you turn over a big bag of organic compost that's sitting out there in front of the nursery and you look at the ingredients label, it'll just say organic compost. Well, fine. Where did you derive it from? Right. If it's forest product, that's probably only to the benefit of hardwood. Of woody plants. Yeah, right. woody plants. And sometimes under, usually there's a derived from, this is on fertilizer bags anyway, derived from statement under the, what it provides. But on bag goods, I'm not sure it says the same thing. It yeah. usually says forest byproducts. Yes, it does. So think about a lawn. We advocate uh, mulch mowers. Mm-hmm. Mulch mowers chop the top off the lawn, cut it into pieces, and drop it in place. That's a green mulch, right? And it's supporting a green crop, an herbaceous crop. Yeah. yeah. So that would make sense, right? It for does a lawn. make sense. Also, I remember growing up. There was that time of the year. Usually, this time of the year, when you could walk up and down the block. And smell bandini steer manure on everybody's <laughs> front yard. And, and well, that's probably fairly green, as you yeah. said in something recently, manure is considered green yeah. part of the compost. And, and back then, uh, those steer were probably eating nothing but uh, pasture land. Right. So it's good, clean steer manure. Yeah. And that was to the benefit of an herbaceous product like a lawn. Right. Science is confusing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
Well, that was an interesting bypass. Yes. Do we need more information on this? Well, just that you're in wasting general, your money. <laughs> in gen, right. In general, you're wasting your money. If you look at bag goods and it says back guano and blood meal and cottonseed meal, buy back guano and whatever I said, cottonseed meal and put them on, you'll save money. There are a few situations where mycorrhizal fungal are beneficial. The homeowner probably will never run into them. One is if the property has been mined and you're on, on mine tailings. That's a possibility for a housing development. Mine tailings would be subsoil, not the topsoil, not even the, the second layer below that, which is crappy but still gardenable. If you get below that, you may have no life in that soil. And maybe adding mycorrhizal will help there. Another case is if it was a farm field or some kind of field that was hit for reg- regularly with f- fungicide, you may need to re-inoculate the soil. But in general, the mycorrhiza is out there. It will find its host and you don't have to do anything. It's even been found in container plants and it wasn't put there. Well, you raise more interesting questions with that. If indeed the fungicide used by the farmers was destroying fungus, Adding more fungus uh, is risk. It's going to be one of those. It's going to take years potentially yeah. to for for the fungicide used by the farmer to lose its potency and allow the natural funguses to grow, and that's going to make gardening in those locations extremely difficult. Sounds like it's time for a raised bed. Yeah. Yeah. One thing to note: if you're in the situation where you are have soil that has no mycorrhizal fungi in it, for the reasons stated, uh, you could grow. Brassicas, broccoli, really? cauliflower. They can grow mustard. Yes. They have no mycorrhizal fung- uh, relationship. Isn't that weird? Yeah. How do they eat? Well, <laughs> they have their way, obviously, but yeah, yeah. They, don't, they don't get the benefit of uh, maybe it's something we don't know yet. I think there's lots we don't know yet. Maybe it's another microorganism we're not familiar with. So maybe when Armageddon comes, we'll all be eating mustard. There you go. All right. Broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. Well, there won't be anybody left to eat anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the cockroach is going to have the mustard. There so you there. go. All there right. you go. All right. Debbie Flower, uh, thanks for the science. You're welcome. In areas of the country that have yet to experience freezing temperatures, the sweet peppers out there continue to ripen. They're turning rich shades of red, purple, and yellow. The result? Peppers that are sweeter, and probably more peppers than you know what to do with. Well, here's an idea for you. Sweet pepper relish. It's the recipe of the week, and it's in the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. Plus, we highlight our favorite sweet peppers to grow, something you just might want to remember come next year. In the podcast portion of the newsletter, we talk with pepper expert Dave DeWitt about growing and overwintering pepper plants. Plus, Dave includes his surefire method for saving your mouth when you bite into a too-hot pepper. Find a subscription link to the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter in today's show notes or visit our website, gardenbasics.net. That's where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and sometimes podcast delivered to your inbox each Friday. Also at gardenbasics.net, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the Garden Basics podcast, as well as read a transcript of the podcast episode that you're listening to now. 
For current newsletter subscribers, look for the Too Many Peppers? Try this relish recipe in the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's now available. It's in your email. For everybody else, please subscribe. So take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. And it's free. Find the link in today's show notes or at GardenBasics.net. We get an email from Ken in San Jose, California, who writes us, I'm looking into getting a leaf vacuum that you can also shred the leaves with. However, I'm not too sure which one to get for a small yard. Any recommendations or brands? Thank you so much for your advice. Would never have a beautiful garden without you. Well, thanks for that, Ken. I appreciate that. And you're on the road to the right thing by shredding those leaves. What a great mulch that can be for your garden bed. But let's turn to an expert and get some advice about choosing a combination leaf blower, leaf vacuum, and leaf mulcher. We're talking with Brad Gay from JB's Power Equipment in Davis. And if you're a gardener, every fall, if you have leaves or if your neighbors have trees with leaves, those leaves make an excellent mulch. They can improve your garden soil. And it's pretty easy to improve your soil if you don't have a winter garden. When those leaves fall in October, November, December, you grind them up, you put them on your garden bed, stack it up as tall as you want, 4 inches, 8 inches, 12 inches, and then the following spring, you've got improved soil. No question about it. The the problem is, all right, how do you gather up those leaves? How do you grind them up? Now, in the past, what I've done is, my neighbor loves me with a 60-foot pin oak tree, but I want those leaves. So I'll go over there, rake her leaves, put them in a metal 30-gallon trash can, stick my string trimmer down into that uh, metal trash can, and sort of whip it around and grind up those leaves. It does a f- okay job, but not really a great job of making all those leaves smaller. There's something on the market that if you want to do that too, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. We're talking with Brad Gay from JB's Power Equipment in Davis. And Brad, I like the idea of having a, a tool that sucks up the leaves and grinds them, and then I can just dump it onto the garden bed. That sounds uh, pretty darn easy. What are those instruments of destruction? <laughs> well, you know, it's, a, it's a great tool. It's a, it's a conversion of your handheld blower is what it amounts to. And they've gone in and adapted the front of the, front of the blower that uh, brings in the air for the blower to blow out the pipe to blow your leaves. Well, they put a tube on that. So now it becomes a vacuum and the blower exit, which you would be blowing, has a curved tube to it that attaches a bag. Before you put that tube on, you'll look on the inside of that blower. There are little sh- metal shredder. Something you wouldn't want to touch if it's running. <laughs> Thank you. That way. It, it yeah. Is a, it is, yeah, and you can't, you can't run it with that tube off. So it's, uh, that's a very strong safety feature, but the it's a metal it's a metal like a like be like a mower blade, but a real small version of it. That's a shredder. So now you can go in and suck up all the leaves in these areas, and it goes hits that shredder device and puts it in your bag, and it's a twelve to one ratio reduction. So in areas like under shrubs that you've got that you can't get to as easily, or Let's say you're around a pool and you're in corners where leaves have, have collected. And in my case, I have 
sycamore leaves. Well, sycamore leaves are good four inches across and more. So now you got to reduce that to be able to use it. So by using this, by sucking the debris up and going through that shredder, it reduces that down. And most of the pieces are about uh, less than the size of a dime. And it's just pretty good considering how big that leaf was when you got it there. Yeah, that's, that's great. Also, I've been very satisfied with it. You save, save two steps. You just take it out, dump it, and you can use it right then as mulch. You don't have to go shred it up. I live in a house that has two huge sycamore trees. And before I had a chipper shredder or I had a back and sack or a shredder back, I had the, I had tarps that I would haul to my backyard and put them on my garden and it would be, I'd have piles back there. Well, it reduced really well, but sycamore leaves a pretty good sized leaf. So in the spring, I'd get out there, get ready to do it and I'd still be part of the pile there. And there's uh, at the bottom of the pile, there's still some of those leaves in, in their original configuration. Wow, since I've started doing the chipping and the shredding and reducing that and then putting it out in the garden, no, it's done. It's mulch. It's ready to use right then. If I was going to rototill, I'd rototill it right in. And there's no big piles anymore. So, but that vacuum sack, I tell you, Fred, that's a that's a great tool to have. Yeah, I noticed on your website uh, jbspower.com that the Echo people have one uh, called a Shredden Vac, and actually it's three units in one because it's a blower, like a typical leaf blower. It's a vacuum and it's a shredder mulcher. Yeah, it is. That's the whole thing, and it's, it's got a nice bag on it so that when. And the bag, it's got a strap that goes over your shoulder. So it's like you're carrying your, it has a rear handle to it. So you can, you know, usually you have an upper handle on a blower, a handheld blower. Well, this actually has a rear handle that you can hold it and the upper handle. So you got two hands on there. And then you have a strap that's on the bag that you put over. It'd be like a backpack kind of, uh, as a, you sling it over your back. So then you power the leaves into that bag. Well, when that bag starts getting heavy, it's usually that's about time for you to go dump it. So, and it's a, and I'm going to say it's just about a 30 gallon, you know, like plastic bag container. Not, not quite that, but it, it's the, uh, it's a, it's a good amount that you can pick up and get rid of all that debris in, in a timely fashion. So you can go do other things in your garden. Now we're talking here about the Echo Shredden Vac, but I imagine there's other manufacturers with very similar items. Yes. Yeah, there is. I still has one. There's is the same idea. We also sell that. It is uh, it's competitively priced. The same thing. There's no difference. There, they they everybody's producing something like that. But, but this, both of these companies are top of the line, and and they're they're run by people that if you do have a problem with this piece of equipment, you've got some place to go to where which is a good thing to fall back on. That's why I'm in business. Buy the best. And cry only once. <laughs> you spend a little bit, you know, you, you spend a little bit more, but you just don't have the problem. The echo unit we're talking about, and I imagine the still unit as well, they're both two-stroke gas engines, correct? That's correct. Wear a dust mask when you're doing this, too. Yeah, we got plenty of masks these days. Well, yeah, everybody has access to those for some reason. <laughs> yes. All right. Garden mulch, I've preached it for years. It's the, one of the best things to add to your garden, and you don't have to till it in. You can just lay it on top. You can plant around it. Garden mulch has numerous benefits. It uh, blocks weed seeds from sunlight so they don't germinate. It promotes better water retention. It provides needed nutrients as it decomposes. It moderates soil temperatures as well. Mulch is wonderful. Why not make it yourself from the things that are around you that are falling, be it tree branches 
or leaves. Uh, I think a shred and vac is uh, the way to go for just about every gardener. I've been using it for about three years now, but you know what? I'm so glad that I got that. I've got I've got a number of friends that have uh, similar landscapes, and they have them, and they use them. Uh, quite a bit themselves too, and it's really a nice handy tool. There you go. And, and if you need a blower, you got a blower too. So if you want to just blow things around, get it into a pile, and then put the bag on there and the other hose, and now you can shred everything up out of your pile. So it's a it's a two in one, three in one device. Well, I thank you, and my next door neighbor with the sixty foot tall pin oak tree thanks you as well <laughs> with, with this information about the shred and vac. It, 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 like I say, if you're going to have one garden tool that uh, might set you back a couple hundred bucks, uh, this would be the one to have to uh, make your own mulch and improve your soil. We've been talking with Brad Gay from JB's Power Equipment in Davis, California. Brad, thanks so much. Fred, it's always a pleasure talking to you. No matter where you go in the United States, you are going to find deer. They're visible, they're widespread, and they love to munch on your garden. They're a very popular game animal, but they're not so fun when uh, they're in your backyard eating your garden, your plants, your annuals, your perennials, your fruit trees, and everything else. And it seems like deer populations are increasing in more populated areas, especially those on the outskirts of town, those that border riparian areas and they seem to be getting more and more bold going into denser population areas because, let's face it, we're not coyotes. They're not that afraid of us. Dear, how do you protect your plants? Debbie Flower is with us, college professor, retired, of horticulture. And I would think that in your time as a college professor, especially at ones in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, this question came up a lot. Yeah, it sure did. There are a lot of vineyards in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And for them, it's a big, big problem because uh, deer deer feed on relatively new growth uh, and they can do a lot of damage, especially if you get a mom who decides your vineyard is a good place to have her babies. Then the Ooh. babies, yeah, that's their new home and they'll come back and come back and come back. So it's definitely a big problem up there. I think a lot of people have finally realized that you have to take all these uh, deer-proof plant lists with a grain of salt because, uh, like we say, all gardening is local. Well, all deer are local, and they may have different taste buds wherever they may happen to be in the country. And if they're starving, they'll eat anything, as a, a human would do. If you're yeah. starving, and you'll eat anything to quell your stomach. So that's very true. There is nothing that is truly deer-proof. Uh, but there are some strategies we can do to protect the plants that, that deer love a lot and that we love a lot and hopefully keep the deer from, from damaging them and keep them maybe out of our garden. So as we try to do on this program, whenever we're tackling a pest problem is we have to correctly identify the pest. What are the signs that it's deer that are eating your plants? You're absolutely right. There are other things that could be eating your plants, rodents, uh, rabbits, uh, and, and deer being among them. And so you need to have an idea of the what we call the signs of deer, the things that let us know the deer have been there. One is the way they eat. Um, deer don't leave tooth marks on trunks, let's say. You won't see a set of marks in the trunk. They, they have to eat. They eat tear the leaves apart or shred them. They 
don't have upper incisors. I'm not real good on teeth, but those I think are cutting teeth. Deer lack upper incisors, so they can't just bite into something like biting into an apple. They have to grab onto the nice young stems and leaves and tear them off. So that's number one, the type of damage you see. The location of that damage. Deer are much taller than other things that might be eating our plants from the ground, like rabbits and rodents. So the damage could go up this, the plant to four to five feet, maybe even bigger if you've higher if you've got bigger deer around. Uh, then look down, look at the ground, look for their poop, the deer pellets. I'm sure you can find pictures on the internet, so I'm not going to describe them. They're black and round. They're black and round. Yeah. And shiny. Yeah. And in a pile usually. And then their hooves. They have two, I guess it's called a cloven hoof, two uh, indents in the ground. And the whole thing is kind of the shape of an avocado or an egg. Hmm. Uh, and that's the deer imprint in the ground. So you're going to look for those things. The, the, it's probably the size of uh, two pennies together placed end to end. The From the t- tip of each clove to the back, right? That's right. what you're saying? Yeah. 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 So, they're, you know, it's not that big. You would think with a deer that there might be a bigger footprint, but in reality, it, it, it's fairly compact. It is quite small, yes. So, okay, we've, we've figured out it's the deer, but we should point out, too, that male deer, especially in late summer, may be rubbing their antlers on tree trunks and limbs or fence posts. And usually if it's a mature tree, it's not that much of damage. But if they're rubbing those antlers on smaller trees or saplings, then there could be a lot of damage. Right. If there's not a lot of cork over the the live part of the plant, so cork is what we typically call bark, and the live part of the plant is just underneath that, and that's where all the liquids move around in the plant. If there's not a lot of protection over that, the wet part, it rips it right off and exposes the, the vascular system of the plant. So yeah, that's a very, they're, the deer are trying to take the velvet off of their antlers when they're doing that. I think for the sake of this discussion, we will limit the conversation about deer-proof plants simply because it isn't consistent from one area of the country to another. So let's talk about uh, exclusion or modification or a lot of interesting things you can buy at the nursery, too, to uh, maybe dissuade deer. Right. There are some very, uh, some several categories that we can explore for protecting our garden. As you mentioned, exclusion, modifying the habitat, repellents, and hazing or frightening them. And then in most places where there are deer, there is a hunting season as well. The most effective of all of those, but probably the most expensive of all of those controls is the fencing. And that was something that was explored heavily in the vineyards uh, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. It's expensive to make a fence and put it up and it has to be minimum of six feet, eight feet is better and has to go all the way around the property, no holes in it. And deer will also, if they can, they'll go under the fence. So you have to be sure that that fence is attached to the ground somehow. If it's a rigid fence, that's fine. But it is less expensive and maybe easier to use. Some of the softer plastics uh, that are, are woven uh, and rolled up and used as fencing around, let's say, construction sites, that might be a, a place you'd see them. They need to be six feet tall minimum, eight feet is better. And they need to be rigidly attached 
so that the deer can't get under them or, uh, well, over is because of the height. They can't get over them. Yeah, or they have to be uh, rigidly supported, too, so they don't knock down the fence, too. So you're going to have to have your support posts much closer together than you would on a normal fence. Right, right. So that, that, that it's a pricey way to go. Uh, electric fences are a possibility, too, and I read uh, many different cooperative extension sites about deer, and some of them you could tell deer was a really big problem because they suggested turning on your electric fence and then getting a piece of aluminum foil, putting peanut butter on it and wrapping it around the live electric fence so that the deer would be attracted and they would get their zapping. That is an extreme, I think. And electric fences take real regular maintenance because a lot of things can cause that electricity to fail. Right. I think a good uh, point, too, that University of California Cooperative Extension makes about uh, if you are constructing a deer fence is not only you trying to uh, keep them from getting in, you've got to give them an easy way to get out. Yes. And that's, yes. I would think, very important that if you spot a deer uh, in a fenced garden, then if you go to try to get them out, they may end up destroying the fence trying to get out. Right. And they're not going to come to you asking you to open the gate. No, they're not. <laughs> so you need to have another place. Fences You need to fence the entire property and it needs to have a gate. The gate needs to be the same height as the fence. And you probably need a back door so that if you go in your gate and close it behind you, because the deer may come in when you're not looking uh, and see a deer, you can leave by that gate and go around. The gate is typically in a place or often in a place where humans hang out. The deer is not likely to head toward that main gate. So have a back door, have a back gate where they can leave. Hmm. And I, I imagine, too, on on a slope, you would want that uh, escape gate on, on the high end. I, it probably depends on your property, but that sounds like a really good idea. There's lots of discussion, and there was some practice of it in the foothills, of using a slanted fence. Deer can r- jump high and they can jump far but they can't jump, do both at the same time. And so if you only have a six-foot fence, one technique is to slant it uh, away at about a 45-degree angle, away from the plant you're trying to protect at about a 45-degree angle. And that combination of uh, distance and height will uh, flummox the deer and keep them out. Mm, Now, I've heard two of uh, experiments going on with even shorter fences of four- and five-foot heights, but having that sloping a second sloping fence pointed outward as well sort of like forming a v if you will and as long as they can't get between the two fences and then jump uh, you might have success keeping them out with a lower fence by having the double fencing right right i also saw double fencing of vertical fences and a dog run between them so what how wide is a dog run three foot four foot uh and Mm -hmm. And so the the second fence inside didn't need to be as high. It just needed to contain the dog. And the deer don't like dogs. So dogs can be used as protection. But, of course, you need to take care of that dog then. That's not a free thing. You feed it, take it to the vet, groom it, all of those good things. Well, that brings up then the uh, thought of using repellents. And there are all sorts of chemical repellents that are sold for reducing or preventing deer damage. But uh, I I think they're only good until it starts raining. Right. Repellents are a temporary solution. If you've got a crop that is just coming ripe and you realize a deer has found it and is starting to eat it, and you're only going to need this 
deer protection for a short period of time, then a repellent is a possibility. There are lots of recipes for making repellents. Uh, they need to either smell really bad, like fermented egg, or they need to cause a discomfort to the deer after they've been eaten, and that would be like hot pepper, the capsaicin in hot pepper. There are anecdotal repellents like hanging hair in the uh, crop or hanging um, using urine of of which you'd have to buy of a predator of the deer. Those are also suggested, but not tested. I'm just wondering how they collect urine from coyotes. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to know. Yeah, okay. I All assume right. somebody, I assume it's manufactured, you know, that, 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 that somebody's analyzed what's in coyote urine and then put the same chemicals together. But that's my guess. Now, what about frightening devices, uh, noisy objects? Uh, you see advertised uh, a lot of motion-activated sprinklers. But again, I would think at some point they will just say, oh, it's raining and keep right. on eating. Yes, it, 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 yes, it doesn't. They're, again, short term. When you put them out, initially they will keep the deer away. Again, you could use them potentially for a, a crop that just has a few days to go before you're going to finish with it. Uh, but uh, and the one you're talking about raining, that would be a, a motion-activated sprinkler. Uh, other hazing things would be noises, radios, uh, dog barking, setting off blanks on a some kind of a weapon, a gun kind of thing. But the deer will get used to them. So they're not very effective. One thing a friend of mine did in her home garden, and she lived uh, near in the Napa Sonoma area, was made a very narrow garden only about five feet wide and fenced just that area. And because it was so narrow, the deer could not jump into it. Does that make hmm. sense? Yeah. Okay. And so they're not willing to do a six foot leap into an area that they may not clear. Right. Right. So that but, kept them out. But does that work from the get go or do deer learn that after cousin Jim gets stuck at the top of the fence? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that for sure, but I would discourage people from putting uh, anything harmful on the top of the fence. You don't want to kill the deer. Uh, they talk about wire fencing because it has some flexibility to it, and it, it is easier to release a deer that gets caught in it or the deer to release themselves. Not not to use barbed wire because it's it, you're just creating the barrier. You're not trying to harm the deer in the process. I guess another solution for people who just want to protect certain valuable plants, and I'm thinking of fruit trees, would be to individually cage each of these fruit trees. And this goes back to something we've talked about a lot on this program, maintaining fruit trees at a height that are within your reach. In other words, keeping them at maybe six feet tall or so and six feet wide. And that way, you'll still have plenty of fruit for the family, but it'd be much easier to build an enclosure to protect that tree. Right. That's definitely an option. And also a young tree. We were talking about the male deer coming along and and rubbing their antlers on a, a tree. And if it's a young tree with a narrow stem, then it's much more damaging to that than an older tree that has much more uh, much wider stem and much more cork on the outside of that wood. So you, just the, the trunk of the tree can be covered either with a very narrow fence. It's only a foot or two across and just prevents the deer from getting up close to it and rubbing their antlers against it. Or you can use something like a tree wrap, a plastic tree wrap or a tree shelter, something netting over the tree, something like that, that would keep the, the deer away. It is not a permanent solution and it shouldn't be. Those kinds of, of 
things that are very small and close to the trunk need to be checked regularly so the plant itself is not damaged. So they're just uh, for starting up, for getting the orchard going, let's say, and then considering doing the fencing that you were talking about next. And if you're thinking of using some sort of noisemaker to frighten them off, I I love this sentence in the uh, University of California information on uh, deer and their pests in the gardens and landscape series. And it, it says there about uh, if you're thinking of using noisemakers, well, in urban and suburban residential areas, deer come into contact with a variety of changing auditory and visual stimuli daily and often quickly habituate to things that cause them no harm. So, for instance, I was on my bicycle today and I happened to be going down Sunrise Boulevard, which is a very busy street here in yes. the Sacramento area. Four lanes of traffic, always traffic. Lots of signals, lots of horns. And here's a family of deer just walking down the sidewalk of Sunrise Boulevard. (laughs) Headed headed for a residential complex where they had uh, spied uh, some tasty shrubs. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. I've seen them, but not in such... such busy <laughs> places, but they, uh, they were on the side of the road and it was a family and uh, of many sizes. There were probably seven or so deer and they actually stopped and waited for the car to go by. <laughs> yeah. 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 I noticed they, these, uh, the, these deer I saw today, uh, they crossed with the light. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I think they've done this before. Yeah. They've gotten to know their environment. So yeah, this, this, this noise stuff, they call it hazing in one website. I, so, um, yeah, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very temporary. I, I guess if you mix it up a bit, that might help. But again, it will be short term. So is there a solution? Maybe. No. Maybe not. No. <laughs> not a not a end all be all solution. We can't eradicate the deer or the damage they're going to do, but we can share with them. And I didn't see anybody saying anything about that. If you have enough property, you can put something that they like to eat way out in the back 40 somewhere. And obviously, they'll still come looking for what else you have, but that you would have to protect. And exclusion is your best choice. Fencing. Exclusion is it. Dear, they they are among us, and uh, we will continue uh, to protect our Backyard food supply. Debbie Flower, college horticulture professor, retired. Thank you so much for uh, telling us the truth about deer. Uh, It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Fred. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's Garden Basics. Basics.net, or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.